Hi, and welcome to Inglewood Presbyterian Church in Kirkland, Washington. We are a church for the neighborhood, whether you're a local neighbor or from far away, all are welcome here. We are pleased to present to you our weekly Sunday sermons. Our head pastor is James Cuman, and you can find more information about us on our website at inglewoodpc.org. to love you with our heart, our soul, our mind, and our strength. And we ask that those parts of us might be strengthened even more as we look at this word. We pray this in your name. Amen. So I'm continuing this uh, series in the book of Acts with the tailwind blowing. But the book of Acts says, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, even to the ends of the, of the earth, a place like Kirkland. And so as we've thought about ourselves as being maybe covid tired, I have found help in looking again at the book of Acts and the kind of power that that exhibits. And the screen, of course, shows what it looks like if you're going with a tailwind and uh, the technicians, uh, we need a, there we go, thank you technicians for uh, helping me with this, this thing that, uh, okay, um, there we go, this is being slow today. So we are doing, um, this, <coughs> this series, sermon series, has focused on Paul's second missionary journey. And you remember he had the vision, he had the vision in the night of the man from, from Macedonia who said, Come over and help us. Macedonia is another word for Greece. And so what we see in the New Testament then is that Paul and his team then made their way in obedience to that, uh, to Greece. And the first stop we did several weeks ago was in, in Philippi. It's called Kavala today, a beautiful city along the, the, uh, along the Aegean Sea. <clears throat> and, and it has amazing artifacts from the Roman Empire. What was there that one of the many churches, house churches we would call them, were established. People heard the gospel, they believed the gospel. And then they began meeting together to encourage one another as fellow believers. 
The next stop in that second missionary journey is in Thessaloniki. And again, right there on the water, as I said a couple of weeks ago, I've had the joy of jogging this particular path along the water in Thessaloniki. And it was there that more people heard the gospel and more people became a part of the church. In fact, we said last week that Paul pointed to the believers in Thessaloniki and said, you have become a model for other churches nearby, other house churches nearby. You've become a model for them. And last week at the end of the sermon, it was Travis who spoke to you and affirmed and thanked you for your support, your encouragement for them here in Bethany Church. So from Thessaloniki, the gospel then went west. It went west to this place called Berea. Berea is kind of midway between Thessaloniki in the east and Athens down in the, in the southern corner. It's a town today of about 80,000 people. But they went there and they shared the gospel. Now, here's the big, the big point of their trip to Berea. Paul wrote in his letter to the Thessalonians, he wrote to them saying this, the Bereans are more noble or are an excellent model because daily on a regular basis, they searched the scriptures to make certain what was being said was true. And I like the idea that the, those Bereans in the first century saw the study of scripture not as a should. Big difference. Not as a should, but as a want to. They wanted to have time in God's word. And so these two little verses in, in the letter in the letter to the Thessalonians, Paul is affirming these believers in the town of Berea. Acts 17, verses 11 and 12. You are worth emulating because they are not, they not only receive God's word with great eagerness, but day by day study the scriptures to make certain that Paul's teaching was exact. And the word that comes out of that is truth. They wanted to be certain that it was true. The many people who came to faith in that town, as it says, including a number of wealthy and influential women in that town. But that's the story of how the gospel began to spread as a result of the second, Paul's second missionary journey. So they moved forward and 
study the scripture in a want to setting. And I, my hope for you is that you and I might leave today with a sense of want to, on a daily basis, study God's word and look at how it might apply to us. I want to uh, versus a, a should. And they studied the scriptures to see that what Paul was saying was true. As I read that word, I thought, wow, we, we live in a time where we are struggling to know the truth. Um, <clears throat> for example, we look at the media and you know, there's fake news. Okay, where's the truth? Or some political leaders will say, I tell the truth when I can. And then there's the whole problem of the media and misinformation or disinformation. And so in Paul's letter, he's affirming that these Berean believers were seeking the truth of the gospel. Now relative to seeking the truth, you see on the screen the name of a friend of mine, Dave Wolf. I met Dave the first time about five, six years ago when I was interim pastor at Park Boulevard Presbyterian in Oakland. Dave came to that morning worship time because he was curious. He was searching. He wasn't a member of the church. He'd only been there a couple times before. But he had a lot of questions. Well, he was also an attorney, okay? And so that was part of it as well. He wanted to make certain that the facts underlying the case, we would say in the journey language, <laughs> the facts were there to support. Well, what was interesting is that uh, he and I got to know each other, and one of the things we did to connect is that about every other Saturday, we would go on a 30, 40-mile bike ride with some other friends up in the mountains behind Oakland. And and it was also a time to talk and get to know each other and to talk about personal faith. And then as the screen says, uh, some couple months later, my phone rang and it was Dave. And he, he had tears in his voice. And he was just really, really hungry to know and to find the facts that would undergird and support his faith in Christ. Well, he and I had more conversations beyond that phone call. And then ultimately he was he joined with others into a new member class in the church. Then he was baptized as a new Jesus follower and became a very active, engaged person at Park Boulevard Presbyterian. 
But you see, he was looking for the facts. Didn't want to just hear some nice ideas or rumors or concepts. He wanted to see the facts underlying the gospel. And that's what we see in Paul's letter to the Paul's letter affirming those Berean believers is that they wanted to go deeper and know the facts behind what he was saying. They were searching for the truth. So, the next slide, please. Um, so, as I mentioned, truth are biggies today. Now, moving from this to you and me finding the truth, how might that look? First of all, I want to uh, note that as I began my faith journey in Christ, those who helped disciple me, help me understand a faith in Christ and how that might affect my life and my behavior, were really, really committed to helping me know the facts. And so one of the things that they did is they, now, as I said before, I never read a Bible. Hello. And so one of the things they did was enroll me in the Navigator's Scripture Memory Program. It's been a program going on for college students for generations. And basically, you would get a three by five card like this, and you would, and there'd be a verse on it. And then you would have a month or so to memorize a dozen verses that came, and then you would submit your answers, and then you'd get another set of cards. And week by week, step by step, I began to see God's word and how it would apply to me. So that process helped me move toward the facts and helped me see how scripture is not just a bunch of nice ideas people created, but it's built upon truth and upon the facts. Now, I have a file system at home in which I, it's all coordinated by a number, and I was going through there, and some of the stuff in there is a little bit old, and I pulled out this one <clears throat> booklet kind of thing, and while it had a lot, the paper was really yellow and gray, and so, you know, I guess it was published several decades ago, but the title was the book, Ten Myths About Christianity. And this little tiny book was designed to unpack each of the ten myths. So myth number seven in the book said the Bible's unreliable and can't be trusted. Now here's some of the evidence that book and then other scholarship plays out. You see it on the screen. 
Okay, the writings of the New Testament occurred roughly between 50 and 100 A.D. But 20 to 70 years after those events recorded, or after those events happened, 20 to 70 years, then the event was recorded by scribes and preserved. The ancient people were amazingly meticulous about that. Of course, they had no computers, and the scribes of the ancient world were very, very respected people who would take a papyrus here and copy it here, and it would be absolutely perfect. And so we see the, the gap in time to be very, very short between the actual event occurring and then when the final copies began to occur. Now the second point up there, the Codex Synoticus. This is a complete New Testament that was copied. And it was copied at 350 A.D., then 250 years after the original. Complete copy of the facts. And all of those copies had to be observed by witnesses who knew about the event that was written there. So you couldn't just make up stuff. Well, then the other piece that is, is most interesting, when you go down to number four, Aristotle, his writings, the earliest copies of his writings were done a thousand to fourteen hundred years after he originally wrote it. You see that giant gap? between the original text and the copy that we use today to understand our English version. All that is to say that they were extremely meticulous in making the copies for the New Testament in the original Greek. And there was a very, very little time gap between those copies, between the original event and when the copies were done. This gives intellectual credibility to the scriptures. And again, under the heading of truth, they're very truth-centered. Jesus, I am the way, the truth, Think about that. Is that a big claim or what? For any person to say, I am the truth, hello? Jesus did. And then we saw that all borne out in his life. In addition, this, the scriptures are very truth-centered from the standpoint of John's gospel. It's one of many Gospels that point in that direction. The theme verse for the Gospel of John, chapter 20, verse 30 and 31. These things have been written 
in order that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ and have life in his name. And I told you some weeks ago that when I first discovered that statistic, that the word believe or belief had been used about 95 times, I actually went through my New Testament and every time I saw it, I numbered it, numbered it, numbered it, numbered it. And to my surprise, there it was. About 95 times in the Gospel of John, the word believe or belief is used. So, the Gospel account is designed to give us the facts that support the truth support our belief, our following of Jesus. Well, we see this in the, in, the, in, the, in the ordination system that we go through in our denomination. If you're an elder or if you're a deacon or if you're a pastor, you have been asked these, these 10 questions and one of those questions uh, says, do you accept the scriptures of the Old and New Testament to be, by the Holy Spirit, the unique and authoritative witness to Jesus Christ in the church universal and God's word to you? And part of being ordained is you then say, yes, I do. Our denomination, along with many, many Christian denominations, are pointing to the fact that our faith rests on a firm, rock-solid foundation of facts. And that's what Paul was affirming as he pointed in the book of Acts to those believers in the town of Berea. They were studying each day to make certain that this was the truth. The truth, as we have seen in the ordination process. One more, please. Um, so, one of the titles for the Bible is, it's an operator's manual here. We've all bought an X, Y, or Z, you know, some tool from Home Depot or something, and the operator's manual says, do not operate until you read this, you know, because it's dangerous. Huh? Okay, don't, right? And in a similar way, we can say of the scriptures that they together are an operator's manual for our life. And all the wisdom and insight that comes in that simple process of day by day looking at the truth. Well, I want to close by hoping you, first of all, uh, see a cartoon. Um, and I put this cartoon in because this is intended to stand as the opposite of what we've been saying this morning about the Bereans and their foundation of their faith on the facts. This is a drive-through church. And you drive through and you get a quickie this, you get a quickie that, and you know, and, and 
he says, he says, uh, there you go, sir. Uh, three medium hymns, one light liturgy, and a small sermon, but a hold on the exhortation. Okay. So, you know, I just want to, well, the other thing this reminds me of is, is the quote that I read about the person who says, yeah, prayer. Now, I just want to buy, um, I want to buy $3 worth of God. <laughs> I, I, I don't want enough of God to change my life or keep me from having fun. Or I don't want so much of God that I would have to love somebody who's different than me. You know, and so so the old approach is, you know, well, come to church, I'll have a you know, a nice time and I'll go home and that's the end of the story. But what we see in this account about the bereaved believers is that they had a hunger to spend time in God's Word, and that they were desirous of really making it apply for them. Now, as we leave on the word of application, I want you to see three questions that are key when you, I, read the Scripture. Number one, should I take the scripture literally? And you need to think carefully about how you would answer that question. I was in a situation where I was talking with a guy in Anchorage and he was upset and he was about to leave First Presbyterian in downtown Anchorage because, <clears throat> because the church wasn't taking the Bible, literally. I said, uh, could we talk about that a little more? Okay, so we did. And I gave him this illustration out of the Bible. I still laugh. Jesus says, if a man, a male, like me, lusts after a woman, he should Cast out his eye. You, do you take the Bible literally? I said to the guy. I don't see many one-eyed men. Huh? No. What we see is in that situation, Jesus, Jesus is using the, the, the literary device of hyperbole, intended exaggeration, throwing it over the top in order to get our attention as men. Lust after a woman is married, cast out your eye. Okay, okay. Intended exaggeration. That's the kind of literature that's there. It's hyperbole versus just the literal fact. So number one, as you're doing Bible study, your own Bible study, is to ask, what does the text say? And then number two, what are the literary devices that's used in Scripture? 
And you know, scripture is just fascinating from that standpoint. Okay, in the Old Testament, look at the poetry that's there. Look at the Psalms. Look at the Proverbs. Or look at the literary approach of lamentation to specifically mourn and be sad about X or Y. Whole book of lamentations. That's a literary genre that is in the Old Testament. That's not taking it literally. It's seeing the truth via that genre. Or the other one that I really, makes me laugh again, <laughs> is a rhetorical question. Jesus asked in the Sermon on the Mount, a rhetorical question to his audience. He says, can you stand taller or live several years longer if you apply to your life worry and anxiety? <laughs> Hello? It's a rhetorical question. The answer is built in. And it always reminds me of my, my mother getting ready for school, coming down the stairs from my room, about to go catch a bus, and my mother said, are you wearing that to school today? It's not a question. Duh. It's a statement that says, get back up there and change out of that and get into the proper thing. Rhetorical question. And so the Bible has all that wonderful color because of the different literary genre that exists. Or another one that we're certainly familiar with is a parable. And we know the word parable really well because Jesus used it so, so many times. But here's what it means. Parable means in the original Greek. It's composed of two words. Para means alongside. You, you might think of a paralegal person or a paramedic. They're alongside that other person. Para. The second part of the word parable is belay. We get our word ballistics, and belay means to throw. And so every time you read one of Jesus' parables, you see that he is taking a human everyday truth and he is throwing a spiritual truth alongside it. Look at the parable of the prodigal son. Oh, it's so loaded. And yet at the end, you see the father is waiting for the son to come back and he welcomes him in the spiritual truth thrown alongside is that's what Jesus, what God is doing through Jesus with us. So three questions. Number one, what does it say? Number two, <clears throat> what does it mean relative to the literary genre? That's in it. And then number three, and, and this one you might be tempted to just toss out. 
It's a hard one. How does this passage apply to me? To me? Otherwise, it's just a nice, warm, kind of comfy little study until you get to the place of being, okay, here's how I'm going to change because of what I've learned and what this passage now says. So, that started with those first-time believers in that ancient city of Berea, studying carefully the Word of God. And then we see it moving through as we look at finally, how do I take the Word of God and make application for my life? I close my a, a surprise event that occurred this week. I've been thinking about the other Presbyterian churches in your neighborhood and how there might be some possibilities for partnership. In San Francisco Presbytery, I was chairperson of the Mission Partnership Committee, which helped churches with similar goals or mission priorities get together and be even more effective. So I looked at the map several months ago to spot all those churches, and one of them that I saw was Emmanuel Presbyterian. It's up the road five miles or so. And so on Tuesday, up the road. <laughs> Thank you. Sure. Up the road. Correct now? Yeah, we're okay. Gotcha. Uh, <laughs> I need all the help I can. <laughs> and so the pastor is Dave, is, uh, Dave Roaring. He and I had met some years ago, and we had a chance to meet in his office and catch up on Sunday. And as I left, he gave me a book he had written. It has to do with the challenges of a person choosing to go to school, go to seminary with the goal to become a pastor. Okay. Good book. He gave it to me, signed it, I read it, and it's in your library. But after I thought about that, I went, hmm. That was a really good idea he had, and hmm, couldn't I do the same thing? And I went, yeah, I think so. And I walked way back down through the memory cells and remembered that I had written a book. <laughs> has a cartoon on it. And uh, <clears throat> this occurred, I did this in, in uh, 2013, but it really had its genesis at the church in Anchorage because there were a lot of small group Bible studies taking place. And we had it set up so that the passage that I would be preaching on on a Sunday, the small groups would study the week before. And so I wrote the discussion questions for those small groups. Well, because there were, there were a lot of uh, cross-cultural people working up there in North Slope Oil, there was a significant group in the church who spoke French. 
So I thought, okay, that's a chance for me to improve my French. So I would write the discussion questions in French, give them to my friend Cindy Gray, who was a total expert. She would correct them. And then those discussion questions, application questions, would go out to the small groups. So I took all that stuff and thought, well, okay, I'll put it together like this and see what happens. Now, I want you to know that I really, you know, I had a publisher publish this, and uh, the amount of money that I've made on this is, I think, seven dollars. You know, it's just been over the top. So, uh, <laughs> anyway, Ephesians, first century background and 21st century applications. I have three of these, and uh, I'm going to leave them here for you. Like Dave left his book for me, these are for you. But I'm doing that because even as I wrote this and worked with those small groups, it was all under the same theme of today's scripture. That is, people having time with God's word and then allowing God's word to begin to shape them. Oh well, let's pray and thank you, God, for this time. Thank you. <clears throat> thank you that you have spoken. You've spoken by coming via the incarnation of Jesus in the flesh. And you have spoken via your written word. We praise you for that and give thanks. In your name.